Good morning. Uh, great to be together this morning. Uh, we're continuing our series called Following Jesus Online, a series that we've been uh, thinking about doing for a while, and we just think it's critically important to process what it means to actually follow Jesus in a virtual world. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus gave his teachings and uh, you know, molded his disciples, uh, they didn't have to deal with the technological world, the reality of being inundated with media and different messages and images and content. Uh, but yet his words and his truths, we believe, are timeless. And because they're timeless, I think they have a lot to offer us in terms of how we navigate that reality today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I'm going to invite the ushers forward, and, or you would like a Bible this morning, uh, something physically in your hands, just put up your hands. They'd love to give you a Bible. Uh, you can use it for the morning. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take it home with you, our gift to you. What we're looking at this morning, the sermon's entitled Browser History. Browser history, and we want to think about those things which we spend time looking at and the amount of time we spend looking at those things and maybe think about how those shape us and shape the reality around us. I have three boys, and they love Star Wars. Uh, they're not unique. That's, you know, lots of boys love Star Wars. Uh, but my three boys really do love Star Wars, and my oldest son, Joel, who's nine now, um, has loved Star Wars for a long time. Even before he was allowed to watch the movies, um, you know, he liked Star Wars Angry Birds, and he liked the action figures and the Lego, and, you know, he'd, whenever we go to buy books, he would buy Star Wars books. He was just, uh, just fascinated by the characters in Star Wars, and I was never a Star Wars guy growing up, and so I've learned actually tons about Star Wars through my kids. It's amazing what your children can teach you. But three years ago, Joel was uh, around six, and we decided as a family, instead of you know, spending the weekend at home, you know, playing with Star Wars action figures, watching Star Wars cartoons and all that stuff, that we would uh, get out, get away from screens, and we would enjoy a hike. Uh, and so we went to Canmore uh, with some other family members, and we decided to do uh, the Grassy Lakes hike there, which is just a really great, low-grade, mediocre uh, sorry, not mediocre in terms of quality. The sites are great. Uh, in terms of challenge, it's not too challenging. Uh, so my three and five and six-year-old, or three and four and six-year-old, however they were at the time, the ages always change, so, it, you know. <laughs> it, was a, it was a doable hike. And so we're hiking, and Joel is complaining. He's whining. He's crying. And he's saying it's too hard, it's too difficult. And meanwhile, his three-year-old brother is just, you know, pounding out the hike like no problem. I'm like, dude, your three-year-old brother is doing, doing this very easily, and you are complaining that this is way, way too difficult. And, uh, and so I, I just offered for him, I was like, would you like me to carry your backpack for you? Would that make it easier for you? You know, as a parent, you're trying to, you're trying to remove all complaints um, and barriers. So I, he says, yeah, you know, take my backpack. So I, so I go to take his backpack, and I literally do this. It is so heavy. I'm, I'm assuming it was probably about 30 pounds or somewhere in that, that ballpark. And I'm like, what do you have in your backpack? And I zip open the backpack, and he, he had signed out of the library at school um, multiple big hardcover Star Wars books. <laughs> you know, if I can't be home to watch Star Wars cartoons, I'm bringing Star Wars with me. And uh, so I end up carrying these Star Wars books on me on, on this hike. And, and I just think it's a fascinating image for, for us as we think about the journey, the hike, the, the adventure that Jesus invites us onto to follow him. But yet, we're often bogged down with things that enable us or disable us from following him like we'd like to. We can't enjoy, like Joel couldn't even enjoy the, the sights or the, the hike or the trail because he was 
so frustrated by the weight that he was carrying on his back. And he felt the need to take it with him because Star Wars consumed his heart and his mind. It's all he could think about. How could I even imagine going on a hike in nature? That seems so boring. Like, i got to bring Star Wars with me. He couldn't even imagine going on that adventure without bringing that with him because he was so obsessed with it. And I want to consider this morning, what are the things in our lives that are taking up our heart space, our head space, our time, uh, that are actually, you know, we, we think they're, we like them and they're, you know, we want them, but when it comes down to, to, to continue with the metaphor, follow our Heavenly Father, we end up complaining and not experiencing the fullness that He has for us because we're so intent on making sure we carry the stuff with us. Because it's filling up our, our hearts, it's filling up our minds, it's, it's, all we can, it's all we can think about. So browser history. If you don't know what your browser history is, what can I tell you? It's uh, when, you're, when you're online and you're surfing the web, you can go into your history and it'll tell you everything that you've browsed and looked at and... It's fascinating what your browser history will tell you about yourself. And even as I was preparing for this message, I, I just did it on my own. Went through my browser history and just curious on what it would reveal about me. And it's very revealing. I want to share a few stats with you. Um, you know, by the, by the time a boy is 21, they've played 10,000 hours of video games. Uh, few stats on the pornography industry. You know, the average boy uh, watches 50 pornography videos a week. 50 a week. Which that means, that's the average. That means there's some guy watching 100, just so you know. The porn industry is the fastest growing industry in America, $15 billion annually. For every 400 Hollywood movies made, there's 11 million pornography movies made. You know, one of the more popular porn sites recorded 21.2 billion visits in 2015. Visitors watched over 87 billion videos, adding up to 4.3 billion hours of viewing. One-third of 13-year-olds in Alberta say they have watched porn on the internet too many times to count, according to a University of Alberta study. You know, many studies are being done and uh, by... Uh, by researchers, you know, and you, you can look online, you can find these studies, and, you know, with any study, you're, you're going to find various, um, various findings. Uh, but many believe that brains are being digitally rewired in a new way because of the amount of pornography being viewed. But this morning, I, I you know, pornography is a, is a part of what I want to address, but it's, you know, it's far more than that. Uh, even if we think of gambling, gambling revenues for online uh, grew from $12 billion in 2015 to almost $30 billion in, two, sorry, 2005 to almost $30 billion in 2015. Uh, the gaming world, the average video gamer is 35 years old. Bet you didn't know that. Also, 50... Out of the gamers, the demographic, 56% are male, 44% are female. It's almost a 50-50 split between male and female. It's a $22 billion a year industry in America alone. And this, this is one I found fascinating. Women 28 years or older represent a significantly greater portion of game-playing population than boys aged 18 or younger. Women 28 or older make up 33% of the gaming population. Kids 2 to 5, I guess when you consider Candy Crush, that makes sense, right? Uh, kids 2 to 5 years of age spend 32 hours in front of a TV a week. Kids 8 to 18 spend an average of 42 hours a week uh, in front of a screen, in front of media, in comparison to 
8.7 hours a week doing physical activity. 68% of kids have a TV in their bedroom. 63% of households have a TV on during meals. The average child sees 40,000 commercials annually on broadcast TV alone. 80% of TV commercials are for fast food, candy, cereal, and toys. Kids see more than 250,000 commercials aimed at their physical appearance and identity by the age of 17. More than 250,000 commercials. We live in a time where the images and messages that we are viewing and that we're seeing, the amount is unprecedented in history. And I think it's wise for us to consider what is the effect of what we're seeing and hearing on our lives, on those around us. And I want to look at a couple of scriptures this morning just to guide our, our thoughts. Uh, Matthew 6, 21. Uh, you can turn there in your, in your scriptures. Uh, the scripture will be on the screen as well. Matthew 6, 21 reads, wherever, the treasure, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. In Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, he writes this the, of Matthew 6, 21. He translate it, translates it, the place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and you will end up being. So just a couple of questions. It's a short concise scripture, but it's a profound scripture. A couple of questions to ask in light of that a teaching that Jesus gave us is where is your treasure? Where's your treasure? I don't know what your treasure is, where your treasure is, but I can tell you how you can find out. I would ask, what do you spend your money on? You know, look at your bank records. What do you spend your money on? That'll tell you what's valuable to you. We've talked about that one extensively in the past. I want to focus on a couple of other ones this morning, though. Where do you spend your time, which is probably even more telling? Where's your time being spent? What's taking up headspace and heart space in your life? What do you find yourself thinking about all the time? So where's your treasure? Where are you spending your money? Where are you spending your time? What's taking up your headspace and your heart space. Because where your treasure is, where your time, where your money, where your heart and your mind are, is where you're actually going to find your desire, the desires of your heart. So this idea of heart, I mean, we understand heart. Uh, in the English language, it means it's a, it's a metaphor for all sorts of things. And it, it meant something similar at the time that Jesus spoke it. They understood the this, the heart, as we do, is the center of the bloodstream. And so they believe that as the center of the bloodstream, it's the center of physical life in general. Out of the heart is actually all physical life stems from the heart. It all starts in the heart, it goes out from the heart. They believe that the heart, similar to us, was where feelings and emotions, desires and passions dwelt. Sorry, not the physical heart, but when we use it metaphorically, we understand the heart to be about our desires, our passions, our emotions. They too would use the heart in that, that way. But they use it more expansively than that. So it did mean that. It did mean your desires, your emotions. But it also meant the heart is the seat of understanding the source of thought and reflection. So what we maybe sometimes associate with the mind, it's where we find understanding, it's where we reflect, it's where we have our thoughts. They actually associated that with the heart as well. Also, the heart was the seat of the will. It was the source of your resolve. So when you decide something, when you're intent on doing something, the place of which, which your action comes from, they believe that came from your heart. So for them, the heart is where your feelings, emotions, and desires are. It's where your understanding, your thought, and your reflection is. The heart is also the seat the place where you operate your will and your resolve and your action. All of those things flowed out of your heart. So the heart is, is the center in man to which God turns, in which our faith life is rooted, which determines our moral conduct. It's where, it's where our center is 
that determines our moral conduct. So wherever your treasure is, wherever your time, wherever your money, wherever your, whatever's taking your headspace, where you find that is where you're going to find the desires of your heart. It's where you're going to find your emotions, your desires, your understanding, your reflection, your will, your resolve. All comes from your heart. And I don't think it's by chance that Jesus follows up this profound phrase with teaching on the eyes, the physical eyes. He says in verse 22, your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. Think about the implication of that in a visual world. That your eye is the lamp for your body. If your eye is good, some translations say if your eye is clear. You know, the word in the Greek there, because Greek was what, what it was originally written in, means motivated by a sincere singleness of purpose. Good, clear. When your eyes are motivated by a sincere singleness and purpose towards that which is good, your whole body will be filled with health, with light. You could, th- you could think of it this way. The eye is the gate to your heart. And you are the gatekeeper of that gate. I coach U6 soccer. It's a big deal. I spend my Monday evenings, my Wednesday evenings. I mean, coaching might be an overstatement. I would call it babysitting with soccer balls. (laughs) I spend my Monday and Wednesday evenings chasing around five and six-year-olds, trying to get them to stay within the lines. That's what I do on Monday and Wednesday evenings. It's a very, very difficult task, um, especially if you're competitive and you like winning in a league that doesn't keep score. Um, <laughs> you know, my son tells me the score, and I have to be like, yes, I know, but don't tell your friends. Um, so I'm trying to work on skills, but it's, it's really just, it just doesn't work because if you've spent any time observing five-year-olds and six-year-olds playing soccer, they, like we do, the, we do this drill, red light, green light. You know, green light, they practice moving the ball. Red light, they practice stopping the ball, right? You put your foot on top of the ball, you stop it. And so I spend a lot of time with them trying to learn, for them to learn how to stop the ball or to turn the direction of the ball, right? So if the ball's rolling this way, you've got to turn the direction and go this way. They can't quite get this concept of stopping it and turning the direction. We have a number of kids on our team. Sorry if, if I get a little heated here for a second. We have a, number of, we have a number of kids on our team that will chase the ball two fields over past the out-of-bounds line. They're playing on a different field. And I, and I chase them behind them yelling, red light, red light, red light. And they just keep going and going and going. Turn the ball, turn the ball. Come on, turn it. And they just go and go. And, and then I have to chase them down and pick up the ball. And <clears throat> I, it's a good time. I, uh, <laughs> I'm glad to help out my community. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing in U6 soccer also is that they don't, they don't have goalies, okay? They don't have goalies. They just, you know, so... Once the other team has a clear, it's like almost game over. It's, it's, uh, and to make it worse, the, the, the hill that we play on is slanted. And so all the coaches are trying to get the top part where the goal is. And, uh, and if you're late, which I often am, we get the bottom. So the ball is always rolling towards our net. Uh, <clears throat> makes it hard to win. So we have one, we have one kid on our team. And I'm not going to say his name. I'm just going to say he's not my son. Uh, he, he has a really hard time getting the red light, turning the ball concept. And so, uh, so as soon as the ball you know, is rolling towards our net, which it does, does very easily because it's going downhill, he starts chasing it. And I know as soon as he starts chasing it, it's a goal that it's a self-goal he's going to score on our own net. And I, he's scored on our own net four or five times already in the short season. Um, and I chase him. I'm like, red light, red light, 
turn the ball, turn the ball. And sure enough, he kicks the ball right through our net. Because uh, you can see it happening, right? They're chasing the ball because in their mind they know, yeah, I got to stop it, I got to stop it. But as they're chasing it, they're also kicking it. They, you know, and they end up kicking it into our own net. And he always looks a little bit confused, like, should I celebrate? Was that bad? I'm not sure. <laughs> and I tell him, that's terrible. No, I don't. Uh, it's in that moment. I was like, good try, good goal. I'd, I don't want, I wouldn't be happy for him. The eye is the goalie. It's the gate. We are the gatekeepers to the gate. We are the goalie to what gets allowed in. And it's funny as I think about U6 soccer, but it's not so funny when I think about our world, you and I, and how we have no interest often in putting a goalie, a gatekeeper. We got no interest in putting one in to filter and stop that which wants to come into our minds, into our hearts. And often, we're not doing ourselves any favor because we're scoring on our own net. We're not quite getting the point that we're working against ourselves. We're not making it easier on ourselves because we don't have a goalie and we continually are working against ourselves by scoring on ourselves. We're, working, we're actually aiding the enemy. Sorry, is enemy too strong a word for you, six soccer? carry the metaphor over. I'm not talking about soccer anymore. We're aiding the enemy in working against us in our own well-being. And it's not just us in our own well-being. It's also our family and those around us. We need a goalie in net. We need people to take seriously the idea of being a gatekeeper for their eyes and recognizing that everything that comes your way is not good for your heart, for your mind, or for your soul. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And the desires of your heart are accessed primarily through your eyes, through your time, what you spend your time looking at, contemplating. The desires of your heart, the, the, the word desire means, the prefix of a D means of, and desire means father, of the father. So the idea is that our desires were actually come from some kind of relationship. They've been conceived somewhere. And the question we should ask is not, is this desire from God, but with whom or with what have I been communing with that this desire actually was conceived? Of the Father. Desire springs out of what we commune with. If we commune with greed, your desires will be greedy. If you commune with pornography, your desires will be perverse. If you commune with unforgiveness or anger over past hurt, your desire will be for revenge. Every time you feel an emotion, a passion, desire, we have to ask that desire, who's your daddy? You do. Where did that desire come from? What were we communing with that actually conceived or created that desire? I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel 11. I think, I think there's a story here that, that depicts this better than I ever could. In the springtime of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. I just want to stop there really quick. Just take a note that in the springtime of the year, what does it say when the kings normally go out to war. David was not doing in this moment what he ought to have been doing. He neglected responsibility. He was isolated. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. So what does it say there at the beginning of that sentence? As he looked... Everybody say looked. As he looked out over the city, notice that it starts with the eyes. He noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. And then he, what? He sent. He sent someone to find out who she was. And, she told, and, she, and he was told, she is Bathsheba, which means she takes a bath in the original language. Just, I'm kidding. It doesn't mean that. She. 
She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David, what? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. After having, no, I'm just kidding. Um, then Then she returned home, and then it says that she became pregnant. I want you to notice the progression here that David saw, that David looked. And even before that, David neglected his responsibility. He isolated himself, wasn't where he was supposed to be. And then he looked at something, at someone. The story hasn't gone south yet. But where the story goes south is that David entertains and dwells on what he saw. He allows it to take up headspace and heart space and time. And so he sends, he entertains it. He sends somebody to find out more information. What's her name? Finds out the name. And then he sends someone, tell her to come here. And eventually the progression leads to him sleeping with Bathsheba. And then she becomes pregnant. And if you know the story, after David you know, commits, this, commits this sin, he tries to cover up his sin. He tries to delete his browser history. And so he invites her husband Uriah back to the city, tries to get him to sleep with his wife so that he can convince him that the pregnancy, that the baby that's about to be born was actually his own child. When Uriah refuses to do that, because ironically Uriah shows some integrity, he doesn't want to be at home in the comfort of his own home while his, his soldier mates, his friends are out at war, something David didn't do. So he refuses to do that. Then David feels like he's got no other choice. If he's actually going to erase this, delete this, um, he's got to kill Uriah. And then so eventually, uh, David orders the commander of his army, Joab, to pull back the troops when Uriah's at the front line so that Uriah will get killed from the enemy. And Uriah does. The story in Scripture takes a few chapters, but if you follow... You know, a couple of chapters later, there was this prophet, Nathan, that comes to him. And I don't have this on the screen, but just, just listen along. It says, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because of what you've done, David. Because you despised me and took the wife Uriah, the Hittite, to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. This is referring to his son Absalom. That would, you know, this was going to happen in the future. Absalom was going to actually turn and fight against David and David's kingdom. Absalom was actually going to sleep with David's wives in broad daylight. And he was actually going to come after David and Absalom himself ends up dying. You did it in secret, but... I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. He's forgiven you. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And it's true. The son that was born to him in Uriah, or him in Bathsheba, sorry, did die. It's a powerful story because what it demonstrates to us is that God forgives David. God forgives David. But forgiveness and the consequence of sin are two different things. That even though David was forgiven, he still had to live in the consequence of his own sin. You know, before we move on for this, from the story, um, if you know me, I like music, and sometimes music and melody and lyric actually bring a story alive. Um, sometimes melody says the things that words simply don't. And I want, I want you to ponder this story as we listen to the song, and you can follow along with the lyrics on the screen. Come and smear me with the branches of that tree Hyssop dipped in innocent blood to make me clean but an old man's broken bones once more rejoice, oh, absolutely. 
song written by uh, Pierce Pettis. Sometimes I get asked after the sermons who wrote that song. So there you go. Pierce Pettis, Absalom, Absalom. When David was sitting, or when he was standing and observing Bathsheba, and he was contemplating, entertaining thoughts and what he might do, I wondered if he thought I'm not harming anybody. That what I'm looking at, what I'm thinking, it's not affecting anybody but me. Even if I you know, follow through on what I'm thinking, it's, just, it's actually just between me and her and God, and it's not going to affect anybody else. Have we had those thoughts that what I do in my life, what I look at, what I'm engaging in privately has no effect on anybody but me? That's what our world would have us believe. We live in a very individualistic world. But the truth when we look at Scripture is that our choices, our choices always affect those around us. We give up, we often give up what we want most for what we want now. And I, you, you, just, you just hear that tension in that song that David gave up what he wanted most. He gave up what he loved most, that, that the effects of his decision on his family and his reality around him, the consequences of his choice against that which he loved most, he gave up in that moment of what he wanted now. Do you and I give up the things we love, the things that we actually think are important, that we would say, this is what's most important to me, but we actually compromise them because of the things we might entertain and look at in a moment? And as we, we saw, the powerful thing about the story is that God forgives David, that David's a man after God's own heart, but yet it doesn't take away the consequence of David's choices. 
that David literally conceived something that would be a part of his own consequence. That David, because of the decisions he made in isolation, his son, his own son Absalom would actually come back years later to take away that which was most important to him, that which he was building, his own family, his own kingdom. You know, when you think about your family, your kingdom, that which you spend time pouring your life into, do you recognize that what we see, what we look at, what we entertain, the things that we bind to the lie of, it doesn't affect anybody else, years down the road will come back and take away, compromise, hurt, that which you love most. The last scripture I want to look at as we close, 2 Corinthians three sixteen to 18. It says this, But whenever someone turns to the Lord, when we turn to Jesus, the veil is taken away. The veil, the thing that separates us from God is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, therefore, all of us who have had the veil removed, all of us who have looked towards Jesus, have turned our eyes towards Him and said, we want to follow you. He's taken away the veil can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. This, this word that's being used when it says has been removed, the veil has been removed. Uh, in the original language there, it's called a perfect passive. It's in the perfect passive form, which, which means two things. Perfect means it's something that was done that has ongoing effects into the future. So let me parallel that with David. David made a negative choice, and that negative choice had ongoing effects in his future. What this is saying in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 3 is that Jesus did something 2,000 years ago that has ongoing effects in the future for you and I. That's the perfect part. The passive part is that it's not something you or I did, but it's something that Jesus did for us. It's not something we did in the past. It's something Jesus did in the past, and because of what he did in the past, it actually changes our reality going forward, and this is good news. So God has removed the veil. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. You and I have absolute freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can, and that veil represents us being able to actually look and gaze into the face of God. We can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. But what I want you to see is that having the veil removed and choosing to look at the Lord are two different things. That many of us have have actually had the veil removed. We've experienced the freedom that Christ has brought. But that doesn't change, for many of us, what we've chosen to look at. What we've chosen to spend our time and our money and our headspace and our heart space on. Because the reality is, as you see in the last sentence here, uh, last couple sentences, that we can see and reflect the glory of the Lord, and the Lord who is the Spirit makes us, transforms us, more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image, that what we behold, we become. What you and I behold is what we will become. The veil's been removed. We've been forgiven. But we still have a choice to make whether we're going to gaze and look and behold Jesus. Allow him to take up our time, our head space and our heart space. Or are we going to look at Bathsheba? Are we going to look at something else? Are we going to allow something else to take, out, take up that space in our heart? Are we going to allow something else to change us and transform us more into its likeness than the likeness of Jesus? There's two parts. There's forgiveness, but there's also what we do with it. The veil has been removed. Are we gazing at Jesus? Are we being changed into his image? Look in the, like, allow, allow yourself to look in the mirror, so to speak, and are you being changed into the image of Jesus or are you being changed into something else? And a quick disclaimer, even when you say, okay, I'm forgiven, I'm not going to 
I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to look at that anymore. I'm not going to spend my time doing, doing those things. You still are focusing on that thing when your heart, even if it's looking at that thing in a negative light, the, the emphasis is still on that thing. I, I, I've talked to so many people that, that struggle with, the, you know, perpetual struggle with something, and the focus is, I'm not going to do that thing. I'm going to stop it. I'm going to stop it. And, and it's this negative focus instead of the positive focus of, instead of looking at that thing, it's like when you say, don't look down. Everybody looks down. You know, when I'm biking and I'm biking along the side of a cliff and I'm thinking, don't look at the cliff, don't look at the cliff. I'm focusing on the cliff, you know, and often your bike goes where you're thinking, right? So what, are my, what am I going to focus my eyes on instead? I'm going to look down the trail. I'm going to focus on where I want my bike to go. You're going to focus on that which is positive. So even if you find yourself in this place of struggle, I want to encourage you not to focus on not doing that thing or stopping something, but what are you going to replace it with? I'm going to actually replace that headspace, that heart space, that time with something else. I'm going to f- choose to focus it intentionally on Jesus because we, because we become what we behold. And that's why Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, and I want to end with these scriptures as the, as the, t- the worship team comes on. Finally, brothers and s- sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellence or praiseworthy, think about such things. Why? Because what we think about, what we allow into our eyes, into our minds, is going to shape who we become. That's why in Proverbs 23, 7, in the King James Version, it says, for as he thinketh in his heart, so he is. As he thinketh in his heart, so he is. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Where the freedom of the Lord is there, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And some of you wish that you could go and you could delete your browser history. And I want you to know that Jesus has already done that. He's already done it. When you come to him and you said, Lord, forgive me for what I've done, for what I've looked at, for what I've spent my time doing. I know it wasn't honoring to you. He forgave you. But then the question is, that he asked you, that he asked me, is when are you going to start turning your eyes to me? When are you going to start allowing me to take up the heart space and head space that I desire? Because if you actually want to be made into my likeness, you want to be made in my image, then I need that place. I need that place in your heart. And I think there's many people in the room this morning that you know exactly what I'm talking about, the pain because of sin, sin and stuff that's gone on in your life in private that you assumed wasn't affecting anybody else, you've lived long enough to realize that those things are catching up with you. That they're affecting relationships, they're affecting families, they're affecting you, the way you think, your heart position, your relationship with God. And you realize that It's not just affecting me, but it's affecting the world around me. And maybe today is the day that you decide, I'm not just going to be forgiven. I'm not content with just being forgiven anymore. I actually want to be changed. I want to be transformed. And part of that change and that transformation, and I'm going to talk about this more next week, the importance of community, is David was isolated when he made that choice, and many of us are isolated when we make those choices and we continue to isolate ourselves when we try and fix it. And that just doesn't work. God actually created us for community. And if you actually want to be transformed in the likeness of Jesus, you need to be around other people that are also being transformed in the likeness of Jesus so that they can rub off on you, that they can keep you accountable, that they can keep you moving forward. So that they can take your backpack full of whatever thing that's occupying your headspace and your heart space and carry it for you and say, we can do this. So let me pray as John and the band lead us. Father, we thank you for your freedom. We thank you that where the spirit of the Lord is, where your spirit is, Lord, you bring freedom, that you've removed the veil. Lord, we thank you that 
as Isaiah says, though our sins are like scarlet, you will make them white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, you will make them white as wool, Lord, that, that you have deleted our browser history. But Lord, we're not just content with that. We actually want to be transformed. We don't want to be stuck anymore. So would you turn our eyes towards you, that we might reflect the glory of the Lord, that we might be changed more into your likeness. Lord, I pray for those this morning that feel like they're in isolation, that you would give them the courage to come out from isolation. Lord, that you would give them the wisdom and the awareness that whatever we do, even though we think it's in private, actually has effects on our soul, on our hearts, on our families, on our friends, that we can give up in a moment like David did the things that we want most. So Lord, give us wisdom, give us courage. And we thank you that your grace is sufficient. And that when we come before you and others in weakness, your power is actually released in an even greater way. And so Lord, we just come before you as broken, weak people saying that we need you, we need your power, we need you to come and change us. And we even need you to give us the faith and the courage to walk the steps that we need to walk in order to honor you and to honor those that we love most. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close here this morning, I'm just going to invite the band to continue to to play. Um, And I'm going to invite the prayer teams to come forward. We have a prayer station here at the front to my right. Uh, And also in the foyer as you exit, uh, there's a prayer banner there. Um, and if you're on a prayer team, it'd be great to have male and female uh, prayer folks available this morning. Um, please go to those stations. And I would encourage you uh, just to take the opportunity to move, take one step out of isolation this morning. And as much as you feel the Lord impressing on your heart, invite somebody else into that journey with you. Maybe it's just a step of prayer this morning. And please take that opportunity. Uh, as well, there's... Just to highlight, there's a a couple of groups. Um, You know, there's a group that's been started here at SunWest, even just recently, you know, an addictions group. And, you know, there's all sorts of um, folks with different stories that are meeting together, um, just being encouraged and spurring one another on together. There's, you know, in that group, there's gambling addictions, alcoholism, uh, pornography. You know, there's there's all sorts of stuff that people have found themselves in. and have come into the light and said, I want, I want a journey together with other people. And we would encourage you, uh, just come and ask me about that. And we can uh, set that up. There's also very specific groups. You know, if pornography is a specific issue for you, uh, there are specific groups for that purposes uh, right here in South Calgary. And I'd love to connect you. And there's also other tools. If, you're, if you or your family or your parents are just wondering about tools that we can use as a family, um, haven't had time to go into those this morning, uh, but there's, there's tools available out there, and I'd love to chat with you about those as well. Uh, but I would just encourage us all this morning to become ruthless, to become ruthless goalies, to graduate from U6 to U18 and say, you know, we actually care about winning here. Um, I'm going to put a goalie in that. I'm going to be the gatekeeper of what I'm allowing, not only into my eyes, but into my home, onto our screens, the information that we're, we as a family are going to integrate with because I believe that what we allow in shapes who we become. And we need a little more of Jesus and his grace and truth and maybe a little less of those 42 hours of TV and screen time that we saw earlier. Let me close in prayer and um, yeah, and I would just encourage you again to take this opportunity to invite other people to pray with you. Uh, Jesus doesn't want you to stay the same. He doesn't want you to stay the same. And uh, maybe you're like my son Joel this morning who's just you feel exhausted and can't even focus on what God wants you to focus on because you're carrying this big heavy load and it's time just to give that over and say here dad I'll let you take it 
The only difference is that when God opens your backpack, he's not surprised by what he sees. He knew it was there all along. So God, we just pray again. Uh, Lord, you didn't just come us, you, you didn't just want us to come to church this morning to walk routine because this is what we do on Sundays and now we go off and live the rest of our lives and uh, we'll be here again next Sunday. Uh, you actually want us to change. Not because we need a change to be loved by you. We thank you that you love us as much as you ever will that that love is infinite, that there's no place that we've gone or will ever go that that love cannot reach. Uh, but yet you have more for us. And Lord, we don't want to sell our inheritance for a bowl of soup. We don't want to give up in a moment the things that we actually think are most important. So we just ask that you would flood this place with your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness this morning and that you would wipe and clear our history. And we thank you that you do that as soon as we ask. But Lord, it's these next steps that I feel that many this morning need to take, and that's not only receiving forgiveness, but walking in that forgiveness, choosing what we're going to focus our eyes and our hearts towards. And we just confess that we haven't done that perfectly, and we want to more intentionally look towards you, Jesus. I pray that even now your spirit would just show people what that means, what that looks like. You know, the people that are around them that can help be your hands and your feet and your encouragement and your voice. Lord, for those that aren't involved in community or small groups or haven't come out of isolation, that you would give them the courage to do that. And Lord, we thank you that this change doesn't come through trying harder. This change simply comes by abiding in you and putting our life in your hands. And you're the only one that can change us. And so, Lord, we choose to behold you this morning so we can become more like you. Where the enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy, Lord, we just speak restoration. We speak life. We, we just say, we stand in the gap and say, no more Satan. We pray that you would bring health to this body, to our families, to individuals. Lord, that you would return what was taken, that you would restore what's been broken, that we would revive what's been dead, that we would be alive to you, that we would live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So thank you again for coming. We'll see you guys next week as we continue our series and look at community.